today, I will tell you at the very beginning, this is a difficult text, right? So this is just a, a hard passage. I don't know how many of you read ahead, right? but we're, we're going through Romans, and uh, the next section is not easy. And, and so I just want to say on the front end that uh, we need to, re, I guess, receive this word uh, really in spirit and in truth. We need to pray for God to, to open our hearts to be able to uh, receive it as, it as it should be received um, in humility and grace and, and to be able to focus in on really the necessity of having difficult conversations. Uh, because really what this passage does today is it forces us to confront sin and it forces us to confront brokenness. And those are the things that we like to kind of sweep over. Like we like to reference Jesus died for my sin and moved straight into all the hope and all the glory and all the promises, which is really good. But sometimes we have to just stop and recognize our sinfulness and our brokenness. Right? And, and while we try to avoid that, the reason it's necessary and what I hope it accomplishes for us this morning is that it takes us to a place where we really understand the need for God's mercy. And, and what a beautiful thing it is to encounter God's mercy. To be able to truly come in here in a full awareness of our brokenness and our, our insecurities, our insufficiencies, our imperfections, and discover that we serve and worship a God who is rich in mercy. And, and that's the hope, and that's the goal. And we need his spirit to guide us. And so let's pray uh, that we would receive it accordingly. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to truly just come before your word once more in a spirit of humble submission and that you would allow us, Father, the opportunity to hear clearly from you, uh, to embrace even the hard realities of sinfulness and brokenness so that, Father, our hearts can be awakened to your mercy. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow us to receive this word well, um, that it would shape us and mold us um, in a manner that is uh, encouraging and loving towards others and edifying and glorifying to you. Uh, so we thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and we ask that you join us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Okay, so when I was a senior in high school, I would say I had an average amount of acne. Yes, the sermon illustration today begins with acne. Um, but I did. I'd say it was about an average amount. I didn't have the super great complexion. I didn't have a terrible breakout, but I had an average amount. And so towards the end of my senior year, uh, I go to the dermatologist's office with my mom, and uh, we're talking to uh, this dermatologist about all the different ways that you can treat acne. And in the midst of that conversation, he references all these different medications and refers to Accutane. I had heard of Accutane, didn't know a whole lot about it, and so I asked him to elaborate, and I'll never forget his explanation of Accutane. He said, essentially what Accutane does is it kind of flushes all the acne out of your body at once, and after six months, you're done for the rest of your life. And that was pretty compelling to me, to be honest. The idea of six months of difficulty and then being done for good, I was like, you know, I'm interested. Let's do this. And my mom was a little bit hesitant. She said, well, are you sure about that? And so he gets out the brochure that walks you through all the details, and it just so happens to include these pictures of, like, really severe, worst-case reactions that are, that are horrifying pictures that are made of the things of nightmares, right, those sorts of pictures. And I look at it all, but it still doesn't deter me. And I think to myself, what are the odds? Like, what are the odds that I would have that sort of a reaction to Accutane? And so I say, let's do it. And so we sign up. I start taking Accutane. And wouldn't you know, the odds were not in my favor. As I ended up being a tremendously 
severe case of, of terrible reactions to this medication. I mean, so severe that I'm really kind of surprised the doctor never called me and said, you know, Jeremiah, we're making a new brochure. We'd love to have you back in so we can get some updated photos. Um, but, but it was awful. And so picture this, I'm a freshman at OU. I don't know anyone there. And I am walking around with the worst acne you have ever seen. I mean, it was terrible. And I am so thankful that I never met Jennifer my freshman year. Like I've told my kids, had that happened, they probably wouldn't exist, right? It just probably wouldn't have worked out. Uh, I was so grateful that I'd meet her to my sophomore year. It was, it was really bad. And I remember, though, while I was going through it, that I would go out in public, and I still had this image of myself, right? An image that I had kind of fostered over 18 years. I had a certain view of myself, and that's what I pictured when I was out in public, if I was out to eat or if I was in the classroom or whatever, and I could almost suspend reality and view myself differently based on this history, and then, without fail, inevitably, every single day, at some point, I'd see a mirror, right? And as soon as I saw the mirror, the truth came crashing back down to me. I, I realized just how awful it really was and what the truth, I was trying to suppress the truth with my own self-image. If there was ever a day to have acne, if I, I would have loved to have gone through that today because, man, if you could have had like a six-month mask mandate at that point, I would have been all over it. You know, I would just been like, come on, let's mask up. You know, I'm caring about you, not worried about the acne. Um, and not just the mask mandates that we have today. Another benefit would have been, you think about living in a world of selfies and photos and all the different ways that we can edit photos today. I mean, I would have been able to take pictures of myself, clear it all up, Facetune myself, and put it all out there and make everybody think that it was all normal. You guys know what Facetune is, right? I, I, I knew this stuff existed, but I didn't know to what extent, okay? And so Facetune is actually a, a selfie editing app. It, it publicizes itself as the number one editing selfie, editing, selfie editing app, okay? And we have a video here that kind of shows you what it does. I'll read to you some of the headlines as you watch this video play that kind of shows you some of the things it can do. Gorgeous skin in every selfie. Airbrush skin for a stunning complexion. Override red blotchy skin. No one has to know. Whiten teeth with a swipe. Swipe away blemishes. Why should an overnight zit ruin a photo forever? Easily emphasize or minimize features. Opt for bushier eyebrows or fuller lips. Right? And so if you can see through those videos and from uh, these quotes, it's a pretty remarkable app that literally allows you to change your physical appearance. You can not just clear up your complexion. You can change your jawline, change the size of your nose, change the size of your eyes, and, and curate this image of yourself that really suppresses the truth, right? And so imagine the impact that's having on people. Like, like to go to that extent, to change your physical appearance, well, we know that it's having an impact. There was an article in Forbes magazine that talks about it to, to a certain level. It says, by design, participation in most social platforms forces us to consume and contribute to a cycle of constant comparison. Get the perfect shot, edit the perfect shot, upload the perfect shot, and then go scroll everyone else's attempts as you wait for them to validate yours. A cycle which a number of studies have already linked to depression, body image anxieties, and long-standing long -standing mental health conditions. Right, we know that this is having a significant impact, right? When you suppress the truth and curate all these different lies and, and false representations, it's going to impact your view of self. 
In fact, Huffington Post put together an article that has some pretty powerful testimonies of some young individuals who have been uh, obsessed and somewhat, uh, I guess, compulsed by all these different sort of habits. Uh, in this article, they refer to a young lady by the name of Lane, who's around 22 years old. In this article, it says, Lane has countless insecurities, including many that are invisible to everyone except her. The app makes them go away with a few simple finger strokes and ushers in the social validation she craves, which is at once actively, addictively thrilling and utterly depressing. Facetune makes it harder for her to love herself, but at least she can love her selfie. Huffington, spoke, Huffington Post spoke with young women across the country who downloaded Facetune hoping to vanquish their insecurities, only to find that using the app has left them feeling more insecure than ever. Several said they edit their selfies so much that they feel anxious about seeing their followers in person, but still aren't willing to stop Facetuning. Since posting that photo of herself last February, Lane works at Starbucks in Jacksonville, Florida, has gotten lip fillers and Botox, wants a nose job to make her already small nasal tip more refined, more Botox to remove the lines on her forehead, and liposuction. If I could just look like my pictures, Lane said, I wouldn't need to Facetune anymore. This is the world in which we live, right? And if it's not Facetune, it's, it's a filter or a, a software much like it that allows us to really disconnect ourselves from reality, right? It suppresses the truth to the extent that we're actually fearful of seeing people in person, to, to the extent that we feel this overwhelming need to try to look like our photos. And it's destructive. Right now, the reason I present that to you is because it shows us how destructive suppressing the truth can be, and it leads to a question. What happens when we don't just facetune our selfies, but we facetune our souls? And by that, what I mean is, is that when we try to curate a certain truth about God, about mankind, about ourselves, our relationship with God, different moralities, different philosophies, when we constantly just alter these truths to better fit what we want and our premises and throw it out there for the world to applaud and affirm, what does that do to us? It's destructive. It's damaging. Because it's a suppression of the truth. If there is ever anything that we need right now in society, it's a mirror. One that helps us to see more clearly our true selves. But the question becomes then, what is that mirror? Like what, is, what is the authority that gives us this accurate picture of truth, especially in a world that has all these different competing philosophies about what is and isn't true? Well, we don't have time to uh, thoroughly investigate all the different options that are out there, but I will tell you for sake of time that in this room and in this church and under my leadership, I assure you that truth is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his holy word. That's our mirror. We are a gospel-centered church. We are biblically guided, which means we see the scriptures as authoritative. We see it as the mirror to our souls that helps awaken us to the truth and helps us identify those moments when we're either suppressing the truth or embracing it. And today is one of those days where we have to look in the mirror. And, and it sometimes creates this uncomfortable feeling. And when that feeling of discomfort comes in, when you look at the scriptures, when you look at the mirror, you know what you do? You find that impulse to want to suppress it. 
And here's how we often suppress it. The way we often suppress it takes us back to the deception that was on display in the garden. Right? If you think back to the words that the serpent offered to Eve, think about how she was deceived. Here's what the serpent will do. Here's how we begin to fall down that path of suppressing the truth. The first is this. We question what God says. The serpent said, did God really say? And just that thought alone allows us to upend the authority structure where we then get to question God's word rather than God's word questioning us. Did God really say? It gets us to question God. The second step is it distorts the word of God. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? It's not what God had said. Changes it, distorts the word of God, confuses the word of God. And then if that word can't be distorted and confused, then the next statement is to disagree with the word of God. What did the serpent say next? You won't die. Yeah, that's what God said, but he's wrong. Disagrees, rejects, calls it outdated, calls it uh, not, not relevant, whatever way, but we just disagree with what it says. And once all those things have happened, once the word has been questioned, once it been, has been distorted, once it has been disagreed with, then it leads you to the lie. You won't die. You'll be like God. And now you've suppressed the truth. And, and this is the spirit of the age. Right? We, we have all these things that allow us to embrace this discomfort by suppressing the truth, by either questioning, distorting, disagreeing the word of God, and then buying into a lie. And what we have to do is we have to break free from it. What we have to do is come once again to this gospel, come once again to this holy word, and allow it to be the mirror that allows us to not suppress the truth, but embrace it. And though it may be difficult, and though it may be uncomfortable at times, we must do it because it leads us to God's mercy. And so that'll be the journey that we go on this morning. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1. We finished the introduction to this letter, right? The first 17 verses serve as a very appropriate introduction that allows us to look at the authorship, the recipients, the promises of God, a description of gospel community, and an opportunity to see this overarching theme that you find in verses 16 and 17 about the righteousness of God being revealed, the righteous living by faith, and salvation that comes to all those who believe. And with that introduction set, Paul then moves into the body of the letter with a very difficult and hard beginning. It's a lengthy passage. We're reading 18 through 32 this morning. And so let's read it together, and then we'll try to take away some major points. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. 
Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove of those who practice them. Well, that's uplifting, right? Uh, not a passage that a lot of people will put on their email signatures and put on T-shirts. But we're going to look at it, right? Because we're not going to just skip over things because they're hard or because they're uncomfortable, right? And so let's, let's work through this. Uh, I, I didn't want us to drag this out. There's too much in this one section uh, that we can thoroughly explore today. We can't go through it line by line and word by word. We'd be here for months, and it would be a beatdown. So we're going to try to pack it all in um, and address it and talk about it. And so while it won't be thorough, we will extract some pretty important themes that I think are definitely worth our consideration and reflection this morning. All right, and the first thing that I want us to, to look at here is, is just the the kind of surprising turn that, ta- that Paul takes, right? He starts with this beautiful theme in verse 17, right? That this is the righteousness of God and the righteous will live by faith. And yet rather than diving into a greater exposition of faith or righteousness, he turns to the wrath of God. And while that might seem like a jolt and while that might seem somewhat uncharacteristic, it's actually very necessary, Because part of what Paul is trying to achieve is to remind us that if you don't understand that you need saving, then you'll never look for a savior, right? If you don't understand your need for mercy, then you'll never cry out to God who is rich in mercy. So we have to confront our sin. He's dealing with the human condition, the plight of humanity, right? And he introduces this by drawing our attention to the wrath of God. Right? And this wrath of God has an interesting correlation to the righteousness of God. Right? Just like last week when we talked about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is both future and present. Right? It's future because we will see it in its fulfillment when all is made new and we get to be with the Lord forever. But we can still see elements in the present day through faith, through forgiveness, through transformation. The righteousness is both present and future. Same can be said for the wrath of God. It is future in the sense that we await a final judgment day where the wrath of God will be fully put on display against sin and brokenness. But we also experience it in a present reality through mostly a corrupted and perverse generation, society, a human condition that is flawed and that is broken and will will manifest the sin in very disturbing and unfortunate ways. All right, and so you see this wrath of God that is being revealed, and specifically Paul says, it is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. All right, now those two terms are pretty important because they're, they're both in the same category, but they both mean something different. Godlessness really speaks to rebellion, right? This is the idea of turning away from God. Wickedness speaks to how you would treat others, right? It's the injustice and, and the indecency that you would show towards others. And so essentially when you think about godlessness and wickedness, think about the opposite of the great commandment, 
Right, so when Jesus says, what's the greatest thing you can do? Love God and love others. Godlessness and wickedness is the opposite. It's the failure to love God and the failure to love others. And that's where the wrath of God is being focused on all godlessness and wickedness. And how does this godlessness and wickedness manifest itself? By those who suppress the truth. That's where it's found. A suppression of the truth. Now, there's some pretty important implications here, okay? First of all, the idea of suppressing means to, uh, to, to conceal, to alter, to change, to hide, right? And so that's what we're talking about here. But the implications are at least twofold for us to consider. Number one, there is truth. And that's worth stating in a world today that consistently promotes the idea that truth is subjective, it is elusive, it is personal, Right? So the first thing we need to recognize is that truth actually exists. And if you want to question with that, just logically, let's just talk about math for a moment. Two plus two equals four. That is always true. Let's talk about gravity. Right? If you step off a tall tree, you're going to fall. That is true. Absolute truth exists. Truth is not subjective. But where it gets confusing is when we all of a sudden start thinking about the truth as it pertains to God. And that's where we begin to wrestle with it a little bit more, right? That's where it feels a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more elusive. But what we see in the scripture, the second implication here is that if you're going to suppress the truth, it implies that truth can be known, that it is known. And that's exactly where Paul takes the next wave of his argument, right? That this truth is actually made plain by God. The word plain means that it is evident. It is widely known. It is on display. And so part of what Paul is saying here is that the truth about God is put on display through creation, right? His divine nature, his eternal power, these things are put fully on display by looking at the things that have been made. So what that means, church, is the fact that you and I can leave this room today and step outside and look at a blue sky, and feel the warmth of a sun that gives us life, makes plain to us that there is a God. Now, we can talk about science all day. And I've said to you before, science and faith are not in uh, hostility or, or contradiction with one another. They complement one another. So you can explore how, how fiery balls of gases exist millions and millions and millions of light years away. You can explore the intricacies of the genetic code and see all these incredible things that help us continue to marvel at what has been made, but it ultimately takes you to the same place. Where did it begin? How did it start? It's a question of faith. You can, you can subscribe to theories, you can subscribe to all these different things, but it's still a faith. Either it just happened out of nothingness or there's a creator. Right? And, and it's our choice to decide where we want to place our faith. Right? But, but what we believe, the scriptures teach, and what I would submit to you this morning is that God has made it plain to us through creation. His divine nature, his eternal power is put on display right? so that we are without excuse. And so you have this understanding that truth exists. But the problem in this text is that people, though confronted with this truth, though it is plain, though it is evident, they will then choose to suppress it, to conceal it, to alter it, this truth about God and who he is and our relationship with him. And so that's really where the text begins to focus its time and its attention. 
What does it mean to suppress the truth? What are the characteristics of those who suppress the truth? And here are a couple of things that we see unfold that follow. The first thing that's mentioned is that they will neither glorify God nor give thanks to him. And that's, that's kind of the first response that Paul draws our attention to for those that are going to suppress the truth about God. It's going to be a failure to glorify God or to give thanks to him. Right? When we suppress the truth about a creator, then ultimately what we try to do is we try to distort who he is. Right? We, we, we begin to live a life that refuses to glorify him or give thanks to him. So we either distort or destroy God. Right? We distort him by saying, well, he, he doesn't really matter. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really, you know, really get himself involved. Or we destroy him altogether and say he doesn't really exist. But either way, we suppress this truth. We ignore the evidence of creation around us. And we end up suppressing that truth by refusing to glorify him as God or give thanks to him. And when we do that, it leads us down this path that Paul says our thinking becomes futile and our foolish hearts are darkened. Right? Futile means worthless. Darkened means an inability to understand. Right? And so all of a sudden when we separate ourselves and we create this distance, we begin to have a worthless way of thinking. We don't really understand what it means to live life. That disconnection from our creator alters our ability to even understand what it means to function as a human being, how to find meaning, how to find purpose, how to find significance. But here's what's interesting about this description is that we need to recognize that very few people are going to say this, acknowledge this, or declare it. Very few people are going to stand up and say, you know what? I really don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, I, I really am unsure. I don't understand these things. Rather, what they're going to do is stand up and claim to be wise. That's what it says. Though they're foolish, though their ways are darkened, they're going to claim to be wise. And that absolutely captures the spirit of the air today. Right? That we will develop all these new ideas, these new truths, these new revelations about God or who we are, all these different things, and we're going to declare it in the name of wisdom, in the name of progress, in the name of intellect, in the name of enlightenment. And that's the spirit of the age. It's a representation of a foolish way of thinking, a futile way of thinking, and hearts that have been darkened. And so what happens then, when we begin to create that separation, is a great exchange takes place. He references this on a couple of occasions. Right, that once we begin to go down that path, we then choose to exchange the glory of an immortal God for other images. Right, images made in the image of a human being or reptiles or animals, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. See, what we have with this declaration is a reminder that we are made as religious beings. We were made to worship. And worship we will. And so if we distance ourselves from our creator, we're going to put something else on his throne. And so a question that we all need to wrestle with this morning is, what do you worship? Now, we, we may not use that terminology, so maybe the better question is, what do you love? And do you love it ultimately? Right, because we love our careers. We love success. We love the notoriety that comes with it. We love money. We love comfort. We love luxury. We love our families, right? Which is not necessarily a bad thing to love. It's a terrible thing to worship. 
We love our pleasure, we love our impulses, we love our addictions. What do you love? And do you love it ultimately? You're created to worship. And so if we distance ourselves from our creator, we will find ourselves misdirecting our worship to something else that is ultimately a created thing. And that's what sends us down this path of brokenness. I mean, that is the, the spirit of the garden, right? The refusal to acknowledge God is God and to go our own way, to worship created things. This is the great exchange that creates all of these problems. If you wanna know fundamentally what is the main message of this text, I wanna make sure you hear this. The fundamental problem of humanity, the fundamental point of emphasis here in these verses is idolatry. Worshiping anything other than God, right? Buying into any other truth other than God our creator and Christ crucified is the pathway towards idolatry. And idolatry is destructive. It's not just what we can carve out of marble and stone, but it's the lies that we buy into, the things that we worship that are less than our creator. We've talked about idolatry on several occasions before. I'll remind you again, one of my favorite quotes about the, the impact that idolatry has on the human heart it comes from Andy Crouch, and this is paraphrasing, right? But what he says is that the allure of an idol is that it promises you everything and says it'll cost you nothing, but when in reality, it's gonna cost you everything and give you nothing. And that's exactly what idols do. They rob us of our very existence, our very livelihood, our very purpose. And so that ends up being the description that follows, right? Once this exchange takes place, we see how God reacts. And so what does he say, right? Three different times, God's response to that form of idolatry, according to this text, is that he gives them over. He says, you want that? You can have it. It's a really interesting response. It's a very important way to understand how the wrath of God works, especially in this life, in the present moment, right? Essentially what he does is he gives us the object of our worship. He gives us our freedom. He says, you want to worship something else? You want to worship a created thing? Have at it. See what it produces for you. Right? Now, this is a pretty common approach because in, in that, right, you see some obvious consequences from that pursuit of worshiping a created thing that are very destructive. Right? And you see this as a common approach within parenting. Right? I mean, we've done this before in our home. Uh, you think about these certain rules and regulations. Here's an example that we have some, some guidelines that we have for our home oftentimes uh, focuses on screen time, right? Limited screen time. Uh, in particular, James probably struggles the most with that because he loves video games. And so there are numerous conversations, week in, week out, about, nope, turn the video game off, nope, you need to have this guideline, nope, you need to have this restriction, right? He's constantly suppressing that impulse and that desire. Well, one day not too long ago, he was able to go on a slumber party with some friends, and we knew that he was gonna be able to play as many video games and as much video games as he wanted. And sure enough, he did. I'm pretty sure he came back the next day and said, Dad, I was up till 4 a.m. playing video games. And I could just picture my son in the moment just like feeding himself and thinking this is the greatest thing ever. And, and when he came back home, here's the reality. We didn't have to punish him at all, right? Like, I mean, number one, we weren't going to because, you know, he was at a slumber party. Uh, but the penalty was the fact that he stayed up till 4 a.m. That next day, he could barely keep his eyes open. He didn't feel good. He felt awful. And he told us, he goes, I'm never doing that again. 
That's a good illustration of how the wrath of God works. It's not like he's just zapping us with bolts of lightning because he's angry. Essentially, he says, you want that object of worship? Have it. See what it does for you. See that it will cost you everything. And for some of us, we may still be sitting there wide-eyed, just consuming our idols, thinking it's the greatest thing ever, but eventually we can all attest to that moment where we realize it's awful. And it's actually robbed us of what we wanted and not given it to us. Right? And so, so he begins to show us that God gives us over to these impulses. And that's where Paul begins to elaborate on the descriptions of what that godlessness and wickedness looks like. Now before we dive into this, let me offer a quick disclaimer. Because when you start looking at the details of how these things are described, this is where it really gets uncomfortable. Um, especially when we start talking about issues related to sexuality. And that becomes increasingly uncomfortable for us today because that's a very controversial topic. Right? And, and even just reading through it, I'm sure, made people uncomfortable. Right? And now that we're going to talk about it, and, and not just that, but everything else that follows, is this moment where we can feel and sense that discomfort begin to settle in. And so remember what I said at the beginning. When we encounter these parts of Scripture, here's what happens when we become uncomfortable. That's when we're going to find the impulse to want to suppress the truth. And we'll do that by either questioning what is said, trying to distort what is said and say, no, it actually means something else, or just disagreeing with what is said and saying, well, I just don't believe it, and then ultimately buying into a lie. So we have to set those things aside. And what I, what I have to tell you and what I hope I can demonstrate to you this morning is that though it is uncomfortable, my job is to teach the scripture. I'm not gonna skip over it. Now, when we talk about very difficult and complex and delicate situations like sexuality, I want you to know that I do not have the time to go into all the nuances and, and the sensitivity that that subject requires today because that's not really what this sermon is about. And so I will tell you that my greatest fear with today's message was that this one section, this one moment could potentially hijack the whole understanding of the message that things could be taken out of context and misunderstood. And so let me offer at least two things before we try to address it. Number one, uh, there have been at least two or three additional times in my five years of being here where we've talked about this extensively with greater thoroughness and sensitivity to everything that that subject requires. If you want to hear those sermons or get that content, let me know. I'll be happy to send it to you. If you have more questions and you want to discuss them, let me know. We can go grab coffee. Let's talk about it. Right? So I recognize I don't have time to go into all those details today, but I'm not going to skip over it just because it's difficult. So I want us to approach it with that certain level of sensitivity and, and a delicate sense that allows us to at least see how it's being addressed learn from it and continue to move on to other things. The other thing I want you to see is that this is a section that doesn't just focus on one particular expression of sin. It talks about a lot of them. Okay, so we don't want to misrepresent, misrepresent the point of emphasis here. But it's very interesting that as Paul begins to explain how this, this handing over uh, begins to manifest itself and how we begin to, to really pursue our desires that one of the first things that leads us to is sex. 
Now, I want to remind you that sex is not just an act. It's actually an identity, right? Male and female is sex, right? And so he references sexual impurity. And I've, I've wrestled this last week or so with wondering why is this one of the first places he turns? And I, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't have a definitive answer. Um, and in fact, what I would share is just a thought, and you can disagree with it or whatever. But to me, what, what resonated with me is that if you're going to take the creator off of his throne, our instinct is going to be to find something that closely resembles his image. And when you think of all that was created, only one or two things were created in his image, male and female. And so I'm not talking about just sexuality or identity or orientation. or anything. I'm just talking about our understanding of what it means to be man and woman and the level to which that dictates our understanding of life and relationship and what we do, that the pressures we put on ourselves to be men and the way we conduct ourselves as men, a lot of times in very corrupt and abusive ways, or the ways that we think about what it means to be a female, what it means to be a woman, and what it means to be beautiful, and the ways that we need to engage in this world around us, and all the different time and attention that we try to structure and find meaning in our life just based on that one identity. Because it's the one piece of creation that's made in the image of God. It's one that most closely represents him, so it naturally becomes an object of worship and attention. And then, yes, all these additional things begin to pour out, impurities and all these other different elements that begin to be confused and contorted as we try to wrestle with those things. Right? And so part of it is recognizing that, that drive and that inclination right, that then is going to lead to all these impure expressions of what that can look like. And that progresses to then a reference to shameful lusts, right? And so shameful lust um, is where you get a more accurate description of homosexuality, right? And, it, and, it's, and it's explained and articulated in a very um, intentional way. And again, I, I want to make sure that we understand why Paul is referencing it here. It's not that he's trying to focus in on it being a worse sin than any other sin. What he's trying to do is connect it to the larger argument. Look at the terminology that he uses. Right? He, he's essentially saying, look, there is a creator, and he creates male. He creates female. He creates the order with which they interact with one another. And when we refuse to acknowledge that creative order, and we begin to exchange it for a different uh, manner with which we can uh, conduct our relationships, it is un natural is the word that he uses he's trying to connect it to that discussion of creation and essentially what he's saying is that when we do that we begin to worship a created thing it is an expression of idolatry all right that's why he's referencing it because it is a very clear depiction of that sort of thinking that he's already unpacked now having said that let me be very clear the church and Christians have taken texts like this and stances like that and done irreparable harm on others who struggle with sexual impurity. And that is equally offensive and idolatrous. We're going to keep reading. So let's not hijack that one issue. Let's acknowledge it for what it says, 
and keep reading. Idolatry manifests itself in so many different ways that ultimately leads to this corrupt interaction that we have with one another, which is where he takes the conversation with the rest of the list. You want to see how else this wickedness plays itself out? Look at the list. There's evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That one got all of us, right? If you thought you were clean, that one got you. Disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity. Listen to these last two. No love, no mercy. So when we look through a passage of scripture like this, and use it as some excuse to look down on anyone for any reason, as if they are less than or worse than, we demonstrate a life of no love and no mercy, and we are equally guilty. And so, actually take heart. Because what this should show us is that everyone is welcome here. Man, you struggle with greed, come on in. You wrestle with gossip, we're the place for you. You disobey your parents, come on, we all do. Struggle with sexual impurities, yes, come here. And we will lovingly and mercifully point each other to truth. That's what it teaches. And so let's read it in context, let's read it in its entirety. Now once you get through the list, two last things before we wrap up. The most chilling statement in all of them for me are verse 32. That those who do such things, though they know that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to practice them, but approve of those who practice them as well. Man, if there was ever a verse that to me exemplifies our culture, it's that one. Right? The, the most chilling place that this can lead when you begin to distance yourself from the creator and worship created things when he gives you over to that sort of living, that sort of worship, is that you arrive at a place where you know it's bad for you and you don't care. And you keep doing it because you crave so desperately the world's approval. That's the most terrifying place to be. And so many of us have fallen victim to it because we want to suppress the truth. Now, how do you arrive at that place? How do you get to that extent? Well, to me, the, the real linchpin in all of this is verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's the description that, to me, lands home the most powerfully, right? And it's that word worthwhile. That, that word actually means to test and approve. Does that sound familiar? Right? When we introduced this idea of living a renewed life, we started with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right, and that very same word that you just read, worthwhile, is in Romans 12, 2. Right? And so what it says in Romans 12, 2 is when you are finally in view of God's mercy and you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, you're no longer conformed to the patterns of the world and you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, you test and approve what God's will is. That's what the renewed life does. The wayward life looks at God looks at the knowledge of God, looks at the truth of God, and deems it unworthy to know. And therein lies the difference. 
The wayward life will sit and say, I don't care about his will. I don't care to know it. I don't care if anybody else calls it good, pleasing, and active, and all those different things. I don't need it. I don't want it. But the renewed heart, the renewed soul longs for it, thirsts for it, no matter how uncomfortable it might make them. They seek out the will of God because they know it is good, pleasing, and perfect. And therein lies the contrast those who will seek it out and test and approve it, and those who won't. And that's the difference between those who suppress the truth and those who embrace it. Which one are you? It's a question we all have to ask, and it's one we all have to wrestle with. And so how do we wrap up this morning? What I would tell you is that difficult conversations like this that force us to look at the mirror of our souls and see just how prone our hearts are to wonder. If we're really gonna put truth to those songs that we sing and say, no, Lord, take my heart and seal it. What does that require of us? Well, the first thing and the main thing I want us to respond with today is to recognize we need saving. We need a savior. We need mercy. So let's cry out for mercy. This is what God's people have done since the very beginning. You see it filled in the Psalms, Lord have mercy. You see it filled time and time again in the Gospels from the lame, the crippled, the broken, the possessed. Lord have mercy on me. You see it throughout the course of church tradition. Churches have borrowed the Greek phrase Kyrie eleison and have made it part of their liturgies, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Catholicism, Western Catholicism, and many others will repeat as a call and response time and time again, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on me. And so that's what we'll do this morning. We'll join in this generation upon generation of tradition of recognizing the seriousness of our sin and our desperate need for a Savior, and we will cry out, for his mercy. And here's the good news, church. When we do this, here's what you'll discover. Our God is rich in mercy. He is rich and abounding in love. When we look upon Jesus, we see that he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. And his mercies are new every morning. And so let us come and deal honestly with the Lord and cry out for his amazing mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with difficult truth. And we confess, God, our impulse and our tendencies to want to suppress the truth. Help us to be courageous enough to embrace it and to speak it in truth and in love. Father, help us this morning to acknowledge our own sinfulness, our own wayward thoughts. Help us to come once again to the cross to, to seek and to test your will, God, knowing that it is good, knowing that it is pleasing, knowing that it is perfect. Help us once more, Father, to recognize that we need saving and we need a Savior. We love you, Father. Hear our cries for mercy. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.